0: First John, chapter two, and it is a long chapter, so we will see how far we get this morning. But we are definitely going to dive into it. Uh, let's start by reading chapter or er, chapter two, verse one and two. John says, "My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins," we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So John is opening up with this statement. He says, my little children. This is a very tender word in the original Greek language. Um, it would, it's a form of what we would think of as like, as opposed to just saying child, it's like little child. It's a very tender way to convey his heart to those that he's writing to in Asia Minor. So it is interesting to note that Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder. <laughs> and I believe that was in Luke's gospel where that's recorded. Um, they were... They were quite outspoken, and uh, their, their voice was something that would have made someone tremble. That's the idea that we're getting uh, from Jesus calling them the sons of thunder. Well, up to this point, we know that John is about 90 years old, and he's walked with Jesus for Jesus' entire earthly ministry. And after that, his heart is still being transformed by those things that he saw, by the things that he heard. And those things are still ringing in his ears. And we see that come out in this chapter 2, like literally almost every verse. We're seeing references to the Gospel of John, to the other accounts of those that were with Jesus. And so we know that these things really had an impact on John. And I see that in as simple of a thing as him calling these people his little children. Uh, that, that heart change from a son of thunder to the tender, loving father that he's expressing himself as here. Um, he does say, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If you remember, and we'll, we'll back up to chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we say that we have, not, have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right there, he says, well, if you sin, then you are able to be forgiven. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, he's kind of qualifying that by saying, you, you can be forgiven of your sins, but we don't want you to sin in the first place. Right? So, if you remember uh, last time I spoke, we talked about the Gnostics a little bit. And they were the ones who thought that you would be saved by the pursuit of knowledge. Um, The Gnostic thought process breeded party animals. Okay? That's what it did. And I have no doubt that John is writing. Uh, this first verse in chapter 2 in reaction to that. Because the teachings of the Gnostics bred these people who would live in the flesh constantly, um, he wanted to make sure that his little children did not go the same route. Um, So he's writing this in a reaction to that teaching of his day. And he says, if, we, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Again, saying, you know, if you do, because he understands our nature. He, he understands that we are, by nature, sinners. And we will fall into that, even as Christians. But we don't stay there. That's the key. Um, we are forgiven, and we have an advocate. And that word, advocate, is in some translations, translated as paraclete. Now, that's a word that we don't really use very much, and it is derived from the Greek Parakletos. Parakletos, and um, it's just speaking of like a comforter, an advocate, someone who stands up for you in the court of law. It's also interesting that that word paraclete is used in reference to the Holy Spirit as comforter, as advocate for us. Um, the scriptures even tell us that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf uh, with groanings that cannot be uttered when we're praying to God and we don't know what to pray for. So there he is, our advocate in that sense. But even John is saying that Jesus is also our advocate and he stands alongside the Father. And when Satan would come along, come to the throne of God and accuse a believer... He would say, man, this, this dude Kason is really not getting it right this week. Do you see that, God? Do you see what he's doing right now? God would say, yeah, yeah, I see it, and you're right. He's, he doesn't really have it together. But Jesus would then step in and say, hold up, he's blood-bought. He's already paid for. And and that is Jesus acting as our advocate. Um, verse 2 And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So, this idea of a propitiation would have been coming from the Old Testament sacrifices. So, in the Old Testament, um, specifically Leviticus, uh, we would have had these introductions of the sacrifices that God instituted for the Israelites, his people. And these sacrifices would have been foreshadowing the propitiation of Christ on the cross. Uh, We just sang a song. It said, The Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Jesus is that Lamb of God. And looking back to the Exodus account, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, God had instituted the Passover. That Passover Lamb was symbolic of Jesus Christ coming into the world being slain, his blood being applied to our lives, and then us being sanctified by that blood. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So there in the last part of that verse, the second clause, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world, um, that does speak to an unlimited atonement. And I, I know that that is a, a very contentious topic and we won't go into it too far in depth, but I do definitely see this verse as speaking to that unlimited atonement. Um, the, the more Calvinistic teachings would teach that Christ died for only the elect and that that propitiation was only applied to them. But I see very plainly here um That it is not only for us but also for the whole world, meaning that believers, yes, Jesus died for you, that propitiation has been accounted to you, much like um, a a debt would be written off, um, and uh, the word used some places for like the account is that of literally bookkeeping. So it's the idea of a debt being written off, being thrown out. Um, That is not only applied to us as believers, but it is there for the taking of anyone. Okay, Um, So I do definitely think that that is um, speaking to an unlimited atonement. Let's look at verse 3 through 6. Now this by now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, you will see as we go through this, John is very black and white on these matters. Uh, there's, there's really no room for uh, middle ground, right? Um, he says that if we know them, know him, we keep his commandments. That's very cut and dry. And this is echoed by Jesus. Really, John would have been echoing Jesus in this. Um, before John wrote this, during Jesus' earthly ministry... This is specifically coming from John 14, 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Note that helper right there is referring to the Holy Spirit, and it is that word paraclete that we discussed earlier, a comforter or advocate. So John is is recalling this memory of Jesus. And... Like John mentioned in the first chapter of this epistle, um, those things which he had witnessed are still playing back in his mind. The things that he heard are still ringing in his ears. It was that present perfect tense that we discussed. And verse 4 He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's very black and white. And this idea of truth being with those who keep God's commandment has stuck with John back when Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. So, there, it's an extension. It's what I just read um, in reference to verse 3, but with the extension of the Spirit of truth, specifically referring to the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the spirit being truth. And so back in 1 John verse 4, he says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And that truth, the spirit of truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. So how can you tell if you're in him? If you keep his word, that's, that's very simple. Um, yet very difficult. And verse 7, he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining." We are told in Matthew twenty four forty that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus instituted this commandment here as love your neighbor as yourself. Now, being humans, I know we, we try to skirt around things so if you say, well, I don't really love myself that much, like maybe a little, so I can love other people just a little, right? <laughs> but that's not the heart of this commandment. The heart is that you love others completely, just as we are to love ourselves. And so now in First in John, he says, verse 8, Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Well, after Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he said, a new commandment I give to you, the same wording that John uses here, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So now he's stepping it up a notch. It's no longer love others as you love yourself because we try to get around that. But he says, no, I want you to love others as I have loved you. That takes it up a notch because he doesn't love us in the same way that we love each other at all. Um, and although we are called to love that way, we constantly fall short. His love is the ultimate love. It is, he is love. It is the ultimate example of what we should follow. Um, That love involved him coming out of his home, out of the Father, coming to earth, interacting with us, and dying for us. Specifically, each one of our sins was placed on his back as he hung on the cross. And that is the love to which we are supposed to provide everyone else. And of course we can't do that through ourselves, It's through the power of the Spirit that we can do that. Um, It's only his power that we can love in the same way that he loved us. Verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now again, we get this idea of light and dark, just like we did uh, back in chapter 1. And we'll see it again, actually, as we move forward. Um, but it's a very powerful distinction. Okay? He's, he's illustrating this dichotomy between hate and love by using the illustration of light and dark. And if you remember, we discussed last time that darkness is simply the absence of light, right? You can't have darkness where there is light. They cannot coexist. Um, In the same way, hate and love are mutually exclusive. Where hate resides, it's only because there is no love. The Father is love, and where he is not. um, You know, if you um, follow this, illustration to its logical end then you could say well in us there is naturally hate with the absence of the father and his light then we revert back to the only thing that we know which is sinfulness which is the hate that is already within us but where the light of the father penetrates there there is light or love and there is no hate they cannot coexist so we have that beautiful picture from John right here, verses nine through eleven uh moving into verse twelve uh it's a little bit of a shift of tone, and you'll notice that in verses twelve through fourteen, John is shifting his tenses a little bit, so it's it can be confusing to look at, but we want to to look at these specific verses just very much in their context of it being written as a letter to people. So if you think about it, if I'm writing a letter, in my perspective, I'm writing in the present tense. But in your perspective, as you read it, I have written the letter. So it's those two perspectives that we're going to see come out in this. Um, And he does switch between them a little bit, but it's inconsequential. Uh, the main point that I want to drive home in this is that he is referring to this specific letter that he's written. Um, All of these verses are referring to, and really they're giving a reason for him writing this letter. So here we go. Verse 12. I write to you, little children, again, that tenderness coming out in John, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, here, John is not speaking of literal physical ages. He is speaking to the new Christians. We'll see later the fathers, the older, more mature Christians, and the young men, those who are starting to get their feet under them, um, and it, and it's all referring to a spiritual maturity. Okay, and so he says, "I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake." It's it's that truth. That the new believer is drawn into the faith by. It is that truth that penetrates their hearts, grabs a hold of them, and that's really what they latch onto. The new believer does not really need to worry about all of the minutiae, the, all of the theological debates that surround anything. They're concerned about the redeeming work of Christ. And that's exactly what John refers to right here. Um, he wants to drive home that point to these babes in Christ. Um, he wants to make sure that they they do understand this point. Their sins are forgiven them because of His name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Now he addresses the older, more mature Christians those who are more solidified in their faith. And um, this concept of him who is from the beginning can be seen back when John starts this epistle and back when he starts his gospel in John. Um, It all points to Jesus being eternal. Now, this concept is admittedly impossible to understand fully. Now, we, we do understand and we believe that this is the case, but in our finite minds, we truly can't grasp the concept of eternity. It, it just doesn't compute. Because we have a beginning, we can't truly grasp onto that. And I believe this is why he, he addresses this statement to the fathers, to the more mature Christians who have their feet under them. They're, they know their scripture and they know, they probably would have referenced Micah 3.5, which we talked about um, when we went through chapter 1. And that just refers all the way back in the, new, the Old Testament to the eternality of Jesus who was to come. Um, because you know him who is from the beginning, that more abstract concept of Jesus that he gives to the older Christians... Now, before we move on in here, I'd like to take a look at 1 Corinthians 3.2. This is going to be Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal and to babes in Christ. That's where I got that term, babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now... You were not able to receive it. And even now, you're still not able. So Paul is saying, Hey guys, like I gave you the basics while I was there. And it's, it's no shame to them that they got only the basics because that's what babes need, right? Um, it would be quite concerning to see a mother trying to feed a newborn a nice juicy steak it, that doesn't work very well, but you feed them baby food, milk to start out. Just like Paul is saying, I fed you milk because you couldn't tolerate that solid food. But it would be equally as disturbing and pro- <laughs> probably as equally as um, uncouth to see a grown man, even an old man, carrying around a, a sippy cup with milk in it. That's not something you want to see. So we see a progression through this spiritual walk, this walk with Christ. So at the beginning, you start out as a baby and you drink that milk and it feeds you and you're able to grow. And then as you progress on in your walk with him, these other elements come together and this solid food begins to sustain you. And you don't want to be a a man-child Christian walking around with your milk, right? So you want to keep progressing. And so John refers to each of these stages of a Christian in their walk. So moving on, he says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Now, this is a good one, and I'm not going to get into this just yet, because in, a, in the next verse, he adds on to this statement. So, we'll see. We'll see that when it comes. I write to you, little children. Now he's starting to repeat himself to really drive this point home. Uh, I, I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers. See that shift in the tense there? He says, "I write to you, fathers." Now he says, "I have written to you, fathers." Same, same thing. Don't, don't let that throw you off. Because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Now, here we go with the young men again. Uh, Pay attention to what he adds here. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So the first time he spoke to these young men, he, he just said, you have overcome the wicked one. That's great. But now he gives a reason for that victory. And he says it is because you are strong and that because the word of God abides in you. Um, We've probably all heard Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. So that speaks directly to what John is saying here. Um, The light that is in Christ, it dwells in his word. And that word... We must take in. You can't recall something that you haven't read. So if you want to be that guy that's that's always thinking of Bible verses, you know, like shooting them out, um, you can't do that if you don't read it first. It has to be in you for the Holy Spirit to recall it to you. Um, So we do want that word to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Again, light. Where there's light, there's no darkness. And um, we will see later um, the, the stumbling from the darkness. And so, so keep that in mind. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Also, Psalm one nineteen nine through 11 says this very plainly. It says, how can a young man cleanse his way? Even in reference to this young man that we're, we're talking about in John, First John. By taking heed according to your word. So, how can this young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Again, that idea of keeping the commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. So, again, sin, um, the wicked one, the wicked one propagates sin. So, your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you and propagate wickedness. And I, I do want to throw this one in here. Um, again, it, it relates to abiding in Christ. And this has been my favorite verse since, I believe, first grade. So John fifteen five says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So again, the, the idea of abiding in him, letting his word soak into our, our very being. And then we have that at our disposal. And the Holy Spirit will recall those things to us so that we can defeat the wicked one. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, in Matthew six twenty four, Jesus says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. He cannot serve both God and mammon. Uh, mammon would be a personification. It's a, it's a deity in the Old Testament. Um, that would personify riches, wealth, um, that pursuit thereof. And Jesus very explicitly says, you cannot serve both God and the pursuit of wealth, God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. Um, Either you love the things in the world, or you love the things of God, and there's not an in-between. Just like we saw with the light and dark, the absence of the light equals darkness. There is, there's not really a middle ground there. And um, it, is, it is true that you are either serving God or mammon. But you can't serve both. So everyone has this supreme passion in their lives. And whatever that is, is what you will serve. If Jesus is the supreme passion of your life. Um, Like like it was said in some of his Psalms, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. So if that is the supreme passion, then that's what you will serve. You will carry out those commandments. But if that's not there, and if it's substituted with anything else, then that is worldly, and you'll serve those things which are in the world. And that will be placed as the most important thing in your life. And that is not what we're called to do as Christians. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So here he gives three aspects of worldly lusts. He gives us the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, it's very interesting that we see Satan using these three tactics against Eve way back in the garden. So all throughout history, this is Satan's playbook, okay? We know how he tries to get to us, and it's, it is these three things. So back in Genesis 3, that's the fall of man, uh, specifically verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. You have those three elements just laid out right there. Um, you see the, the pride of life. It's desirable to make one wise. See the lust of the eyes. It looked good. The fruit was a good-looking fruit. It was probably one that you would pick out at HEB. Um, <laughs> and then... The last one, it was good for food. It was desirable to satisfy Eve's flesh. Um, And when we say fleshly desires, we're not just talking about like a sexual kind of desire, but anything fleshly. And we'll look in just a second when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Uh, Satan did appeal to his flesh, but it was more of his hunger so it was the bread that that Satan was kind of offering Jesus as a temporary satisfaction. So that's the idea that we're getting uh, from John here in verse 16. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Those things are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Okay, let's... Let's go back to Matthew 4. And this is when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness. And Satan appeals to Jesus to tempt him in these same three ways. So, like I just mentioned, Satan appeals to Jesus' flesh. He says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, if you remember, Jesus was already fasting for 40 days and 40 nights at the point when Satan came to him. So this tells me a couple of things. One, that Satan does not have pity on us. Um, As Christians, we are his enemy. Remember, light and darkness, they do not cohabitate. So if we are Satan's enemy, he is out to utterly destroy us. Um, He doesn't take it easy. So when Jesus is down for the count um, in boxing I guess it is um, Satan comes to him and tries to kick him while he's down it's his most vulnerable position he has been fasting for 40 days 40 nights and I've heard I, I don't know from personal experience but I've been told that after about 15 days of fasting you lose your hunger you no longer desire for for food uh, but there comes a point, if you continue to push that, that the hunger comes back. And that's after you've exhausted all of the other resources in your body. Um, And when the hunger comes back, that's a sign that you're literally starting to starve to death, okay? It's, It's your body telling you like, I need food now, or this is not gonna keep up for much longer. So here, it says Jesus was hungry. And after 40 days and 40 nights, that tells me that he's past that point of not feeling hunger. He is again feeling hunger, and that is a very powerful thing. Um, you're probably getting hungry right now. Probably saying, oh, it's about lunchtime. Yeah, we've got some good food over there. Um, so um, Satan is appealing to Jesus' flesh, and in this very vulnerable point in Jesus' life, Satan just pours it on heavy. He's saying, if you're actually the Son of God, which Satan knew, but he's still trying to deceive. Um, If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread so that you can satisfy that temporal desire within you. Uh, Don't deny your flesh. Let it have what it wants. Give it what it wants. It's fine. Uh, It'll actually, it would have made Jesus feel better, but that's not why he was on the earth. He wasn't here to satisfy his flesh. He was here to fulfill the will of the Father. And that was his supreme passion while he was on the earth. Satan also appeals to the pride of life. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Notice, Satan quotes scripture here. Um, his, His knowledge of the Bible is amazing. Um, it's probably far superior to any human, honestly, um, because he has been around a while. We'll say that. Um, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So Satan quotes Scripture to Jesus. How does Jesus come back against that with Scripture? Every time Satan attacks Jesus responds with Scripture in context. Satan is taking these Scriptures out of context. There's, there's nothing true in what he's saying, in the idea of what he's saying. But taken in the correct context, the Scripture that he quotes is true. So that does speak to the importance of getting that context when you're trying to exegete when you're trying to draw uh, meaning from the scripture, so Jesus responds and denies Satan, no, not going to do it, so Satan comes back, lust of the eyes satan it says it says it they went up to an exceedingly high mountain, exceedingly high, and this is a really interesting passage and it it says that Satan showed him all of the kingdoms of the world. That must have been pretty high if you could see all of the kingdoms of the world. Um, and I think that there's a little bit more to that. But um, we don't see Jesus refuting this claim that Satan can give these kingdoms to him. Jesus accepts the fact that these are Satan's to give. Okay? And we see God giving the earth to Adam in Genesis 2, I believe it is, when Adam was created. Well, in Genesis 3, the very next chapter, Adam gives the world to Satan by disobeying the commandments of God. And so since then, the world has been controlled by this evil entity, Satan. And we see him called the prince of the power of the air. In Scripture, And that really speaks to the, the worldwide nature of his influence. Um, he is the prince of the power of the air. He rules over this realm. Um, so when Satan offered to give Jesus all these things that were in the world, Jesus accepts the fact that that is Satan's to give. But we know this would have been a extremely powerful temptation to jesus we do know that he did not in his flesh want to suffer on the cross now at in the end his will to serve the father and his will was greater than that fleshly desire that he had to avoid the suffering that's very important Um, but this would have been an, an easy out for jesus um, if He came to the world to redeem it, to bring it back to the Father, um, but not in this way, not from bowing down to Satan. That would uproot the whole plan of salvation. But Jesus chose the harder path, the path that he knew his Father willed him to take. And he does that again by quoting Scripture. He refutes Satan every time. And um, he did know that this this was not the Father's will. So the word that he had treasured in his heart. Remember, his parents left him one time when they were going back home. They left him in the synagogue. And he was exploring the word of God. He was diving into it with the religious teachers of that day. So he had treasured these things up in his heart. And that's what allowed him to, to get through these temptations. Um, also worth noting, they're the exact same temptations that we face today. Um, in Hebrews, it says that he is the perfect high priest. He was tempted in every way that we are, so he can aid us when we're tempted. And this is one of the, one of the ways that he can do that. And to wrap up, I do want to read verse 17 again, but I'm going to read it from the West. And y'all know I, I like the weast. I used it a couple times in first John one. So here you go. And the world is being caused to pass away and it's passionate desire, but the one who keeps on habitually doing the will of God abides forever. So that gives us a, a better view of these Greek tenses that are used. So he doesn't just say the one who does the will of God one time, just, just a little bit, abides forever. It's, it's written in the sense that the one who keeps on habitually doing the will of God abides forever. And that's the word living inside us.